Hebrews chapter 7. Once you found that, let's stand. And we'll read down through verse number, from verse 1 down through verse number 5 to begin. And expositorily, we'll be studying a good chunk of the chapter tonight. We'll see how far we get. On the back of your bulletin, we only have about the first half of the, the outline. That's all we could squeeze on there. So this is going to take us two, three, maybe four weeks to get through this. But uh, we're going to learn a lot about uh, Melchizedek. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being, by interpretation, king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abiding, uh, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who received the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. So the title of the Bible study is this, Who is Melchizedek? Who is Melchizedek? Well, we hope to answer that tonight, and not only answer the question of who is Melchizedek, but understand the importance of uh, who he is in the Bible, and even how that comes down and impacts us in 2019, some 4,000 plus years after Melchizedek was um, mentioned in Scripture, maybe even going back further than that. But let's pray tonight. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to have a clarity of mind, and as we do our best to understand Hebrews 7, Lord, I can't wait till we're all sitting in your presence, and you have the Scriptures open, and you're the one teaching us line upon line, precept upon precept, and really breaking the bread of life in a way that only you can do. And uh, Lord, until we get there, help us to do our best to study it and understand it. And Lord, uh, may it impact us. We know that all Scripture is given by inspiration, and all Scripture is profitable. So may so, may, may it be that for us tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, there are a lot of theories out there about who Melchizedek is, um, and a lot of people have tried to stretch this and make this into something I believe it isn't. And I think that when we get into Hebrews 7, um, especially when we look close at verse 3, it's pretty undeniable, in my opinion anyway, who Melchizedek is. Uh, but let's, let's jump in tonight to the outline, and I, I'm going to cut short any introductory thoughts uh, just so that we can uh, get as far along as we can. We'll, st- we'll st- uh, stop at places and teach and maybe even preach a little. But let's jump in here tonight. Notice number one, Melchizedek's role. Melchizedek's role. Let's look at what his role was. Uh, look at chapter 7 and verse number 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Notice letter A, his position. His position. So Melchizedek held some positions. He was uh, both a king... And a priest. He was a king and a priest. And as a king, he had power over man. 
as a priest, he had power with God. Now, I want you to know this, that nowhere in Scripture do you find anyone else that isn't divine that holds both the title of king and priest. There is no God figure anywhere in Scripture that held both titles. In fact, kings came from the lineage of Judah, and priests came from the lineage of Levi, and more specifically, Aaron. And so these came from two different family groups. And there's one instance in Scripture where a king tried to be a priest. You may remember he walked into, uh, I believe it was the temple, and he tried to go in and do a sacrifice, and God struck him down with leprosy. Because you were not to try to be both a king and a priest. You may remember that uh, Saul tried to perform a sacrifice. And that was the point where God stripped away the kingdom from Saul. He said, if you're going to try to be a king and a priest, you'll be neither. And your family will be neither. Uh, I want you to understand that people, uh, people will study that passage in 1 Samuel and say, well, why was God so hard on Saul over just performing a little sacrifice? Symbolically, Saul was trying to make himself something that was reserved for Melchizedek and the representation of Melchizedek in the New Testament. And when you go messing with the symbolism of the Bible, God does not take well to that. You remember when Moses struck the rock the second time? God did not take well to that. You say, well, it was just striking a rock. No, that striking the rock once was representing Jesus dying on the cross once. Jesus did not die on the cross twice. And that symbolism was ruined by Moses. And uh, that, that was such a grievous error for Saul that when he performed a sacrifice, God stripped away the lineage from Saul and took that and gave it uh, over uh, to David instead. So uh, uh, his position. Turn over to Genesis chapter number 14. There are only three places in the Bible where we find Melchizedek talked about. Genesis 14, we'll look at a passage over in Psalm 110, and then the book of Hebrews. That's it. That's it. There's not a whole lot there. In fact, he's talked about, and then he's gone. In Genesis 14, he's referenced here. Um, You may know the story. Lot has moved into Sodom and Gomorrah. He is living there. And then this big war breaks out between all of the kings. Um, There's a, a, a pack of five kings that come up against Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham takes his his proprietary army. And uh, he joins forces with Sodom and Gomorrah, and they go in and they destroy these enemies. And they ravish the city uh, or these other kings. They take the, uh, of the spoils. And now Abraham, with his army, he is heading home. And as he's coming home, he meets or, or rendezvous with this Melchizedek. Look at chapter 14, verse number 17. It says, And the king of Sodom went up to meet him as... After his return from the slaughter of, uh, of Chidor Leomer, that's my best attempt, and of the kings that were with him, and at the valley of uh, Sheva, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, or Abram rather, of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. 
And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. Look here. And he gave him tithes. That word tithe means one-tenth. He gave him one-tenth of all. So here you have Melchizedek. He just appears seemingly out of nowhere. Abraham, uh, here his name yet had not yet been changed. He's just Abram here. But Abram returns from the battle, and he rendezvous with this priest of the Most High God. And then after this passage, Melchizedek disappears from Scripture. And you don't hear him referenced again until David references him in Psalm 110. And uh, it just seems odd. It is a mystery until the book of Hebrews where it is explained. And we get to get this mystery explained to us tonight. So Melchizedek's role, what was his role? Well, he was a king and he was a priest, Hebrews 7 tells us. Let her be noticed his province. Okay, pastor, where was he a king and to whom was he a priest? Well, uh, the Bible tells us, let's look back at chapter 7 and verse number 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem. Someone know where Salem is? That's Jerusalem. Salem and Zion and Jerusalem are all the same place. Now, does anybody uh, know uh, at this point in the Bible, back in Genesis, was Jerusalem the capital of Israel? Israel didn't exist. Israel had not yet even been born. Israel was the grandson of Abraham. He wasn't even around. And so if Israel didn't exist, if there was a Jerusalem or a Salem, it was not inhabited by God's people. So he's king of Salem. Where is he king of? Am I making you think a little bit tonight? Did you know that there's a Jerusalem in heaven? So he's coming from a Jerusalem that is heavenly. He's king of Salem. So where is his province? Well, Salem or Jerusalem. Um, I love this as well. Look back at chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, uh, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of... Righteousness. So we see an attribute of this king. He's king of Salem. He's king of righteousness. Now read on. I'm going to pull something else. Uh, pull something else here out of the passage. That's awesome. After that, also king of Salem, which is what king of peace. Did you know that peace and righteousness work hand in hand? If there's no peace in your heart, then there's an absence of righteousness. If uh, there is peace in your heart, then there is righteousness. Where there is, uh, what is the old, the old phrase, the old phrase that fits on a bumper sticker? I've seen this on bumper stickers. No God, K-N-O-W. No God, no peace. No God, N-O, no God, no peace. Where you are walking with the Lord and His righteousness is reigning in your heart, then peace will also reign in your heart. The two sit on the throne together. 
And then when righteousness is not allowed to sit on the throne of your heart, peace will not sit on the throne of your heart. And so if you are tore up on the inside, if you're sad or anxious or fearful or worried or afraid, and you're lacking peace, you're all of the things that are antonyms to peace, well, then you have to stop and ask yourself how much righteousness is at rule in your heart. How much righteousness is at rule in your heart? And so this king... What was his province? Well, his province was over Salem or peace. And so there is a figurative rule here and there's a literal geographical rule here. Salem or peace and then there's righteousness. His province. Let her see, notice his pedigree. His pedigree. Some would argue that Melchizedek was Shem in the Old Testament. You're not buying it, are you, Mark? Not buying it. Um, I've read all kinds of stuff about how people stretch it. and um, uh, I don't know. After you read verse 3, it's pretty hard to see how it could be anybody but Jesus. Look at verse 3. Without father, without mother, without descent. So whoever this is, they don't have any parents. Well, I think Shem had some parents, did he not? Mainly like Noah and Mrs. Noah. We don't know Noah's wife's name, so she just gets called Mrs. Noah. Um, Without descent, so no parents. Um, Having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Can I just say this? If it isn't Jesus, then we must add a fourth person to the Godhead. Right? Right? Um, and then it isn't the Trinity. It's whatever it's called when you put four up there. Um, so your options are there is a fourth person in the Godhead or one of the three Godheads is Melchizedek. Okay, let's keep reading. Uh, Without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, a, abideth a priest continually. Now, the phrase that throws people off is that phrase, made uh, like unto the Son of God, but made like unto the Son of God. And people will say, well, see, that phrase right there means that it can't be Jesus because he's made like unto the Son of God. Not he isn't. It doesn't say that he is the Son of God. And what I would tell you right there is uh, is that uh, this all that means is that Melchizedek was an Old Testament appearance of Christ. Melchizedek is an Old Testament appearance of Christ. What do we call, there's a fancy term, what do we call an Old Testament appearance of Christ? Someone other than Stephen. Stephen has all the answers. A Christophany. Very good. I'm not trying to discourage you from answering. I'm just trying to get other people involved. A Christophany. So Melchizedek is an Old Testament Christophany. By the way, this isn't the only time that Abraham rendezvous with Christ in the Old Testament. You may remember when Sarah laughed behind the tent door. Okay, he was having bread and fish with, uh, with Jesus. The other thing I'll tell you is that a lot of times when you find Christ in the Old Testament, he's eating. I don't know if you ever noticed that, but he's eating. Um, uh, so, uh, what's that? Someone said something? But, uh, yeah, so he's eating. So, uh, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Who is Melchizedek? Well, it's Jesus because he has no parents, and according to this, he's eternal. He's lived from eternity past, and he will live on into eternity future. 
And he is a priest that abideth continually. That means his reign will never be stopped. Is Melchizedek still reigning as a priest today? According to verse 3, the answer is yes, he is. So number one, we see Melchizedek's role. Number two, we see Abraham's reverence. Abraham's reverence. Anybody guess the blank correct? I'm looking to see. Does anybody here try to guess the blanks ahead? I know Jason does. Does anybody else try to guess the blanks? I was talking to Jason uh, Monday, and he was getting on me about my outline Sunday, and he said I chose the wrong word. And he had the, the he actually did have a better word, but uh, um, I used whenever I attended a church that did that, I used to try to guess the blanks too. And I wasn't very good at it. Uh, Abraham's reverence. Look at uh, chapter 7, verse number 2. It says, To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, king of peace. So I want you to pay attention to that first part of verse 2. That Abraham gave a tenth part of all. Look down at verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Uh, now, I want you to, to know this about Abraham. At this point, Abraham is returning from having won and been the main reason why a major war in the world was won. Abraham and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah went up against five kings and whipped five kingdoms. And we don't talk much about this aspect of Abraham. But you can go back to Genesis 14 and you can read about that whole war and how that went down. Abraham was a warrior. He was a warrior. And you have to understand, coming back from this war with his army of, of, of servants and men that, that, that worked for him uh, and, and trained with him, um, he was riding high in political clout in the world. And so he comes uh, with no doubt uh, a lot of power and prestige, and he meets Melchizedek, and he so reverences Melchizedek that he gives him one-tenth of all of the spoils that he's taken from these countries. That's a lot of reverence. Now look, I would have to really, really revere you to give you one-tenth of my wealth. Is everybody on board with that? You know why he gave one-tenth of his wealth to Melchizedek? Because Melchizedek to him was God. Here's what I want to drive home tonight. Nowhere in Genesis 14 or in Hebrews 7 does it say that Melchizedek required Abraham to give this. It does not say that anywhere in those passages. I've studied it. I've read it. I would encourage you to do the same. People will hold up this passage and they'll say, see, even Abraham before the law tithed. And so tithing exists outside of the law. And I ask this question. So, okay, it's obvious that Abraham paid a tithe. The question isn't, did he pay the tithe? The question is, was he required to pay the tithe? Now, maybe he was, but nowhere does it say he was. The Bible tells us God loveth a cheerful giver. God loveth a cheerful giver. You know what Abraham did here? He reached into his wealth and he voluntarily and cheerfully gave to Melchizedek out of reverence and worship. Reverence and worship. 
I'm afraid that in 2019, that word worship has become cheap. It's become cheap. Now, I'm going to speak about the general masses. I'm not going to paint individuals. I know there are individuals that will break from this mold. But in many of our contemporary churches today, people live like they want to on Monday through Saturday. And they show up to church on Sunday and have some song that is led by some worship team with drums in the background. And they stand up and the song is highly emotional. And they close their eyes and they put their hands in the air and they worship. Now, can you worship through song? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you can. I hope that when we sing on Sundays here, in the morning and the evening, and as we sing some hymnals here on Wednesday, it's less about the singing on Wednesday than it is on Sunday morning and Sunday evening, but I hope that you have come in to the church with a heart prepared for worship and that the words to the song so deeply touch your heart that you will close your eyes and sing to the Lord. Now, by the way, somebody will take what I'm saying here and they'll get all offended. There is nothing wrong. Let me be really clear on this. There's nothing wrong with raising your hands while you're praising the Lord. Nothing wrong with it. The Bible talks about the lifting up of holy hands. The question isn't, is it right or wrong to raise your hand while you sing? The question is, what is your motive while you raise your hand while you sing? You know, it's wrong for Mark to sit over here and say amen in church just to get people to look at him and think he's spiritual. Now, is it wrong to say amen in church with a Jake? No, in fact, I encourage it. I'm encouraged when the people in the church say amen. You all are a little dry and stuffy sometimes. Come on! You want to do it, Brother Joe? From the summit? No, you're good. Okay, he knows, that's an inside joke. He knows what I'm talking about. Um, you, uh, you go to the southeast and uh, preach some of the sermons I preach here, and man, they're swinging from the chandeliers. Waving their Bible, running, running laps around the aisles, and that's normal. I, it, it feels like Baptist churches are Pentecostal churches up here. In fact, there's Baptist churches down there that are more emotional than some Pentecostal churches in New England. And, uh, and they're, they're, that's just their culture, alright? There's nothing wrong with saying amen, and there's nothing wrong with raising your hand while you're singing. But the question isn't, uh, uh the action, it's the motive behind the action. You better be raising your hand because you're being moved by the Spirit of God to do so. Not because, you know, you, you want people to look at you as though that you're spiritual. Here's where I'm going with this worship thing. Giving financially to the Lord is an action of worship. You show me your pocketbook. You show me your giving record, and I'll show you how much you reverence the Lord. Now, I don't know what any of you give in this room. I don't know what anyone in this room gives except me. That's it. I don't know. And so this is not pointed at any one individual. But I can tell you this. If the people of White Oak Baptist Church really did worship God, and they reached in their pocketbook and gave according to the amount of worship they ought to have, we would have lots and lots of money to do a lot more for the gospel of Christ than we can currently do. 
Money is tight around here. You say, well, pastor, we paid off our mortgage. Boy, I sure am thankful for that one person who reached in deep in their pocket and gave toward the balance of the mortgage. Now, I don't want to undersell what the rest of you did in 30 years of giving. But can I tell you that ever since the mortgage got paid off, the offerings have dropped at church. Now, what's up with that? Are you worshiping the Lord less? Are you worshiping the Lord less? We've had to dip into our reserves the last couple of months to pay our missionaries. What about that commitment you made last March that you would give for the next 12 months? Well, pastor, money got tight. Did your faith, did your faith get less? Okay, we're to give faithfully to the Lord. Now, I'm not trying to pick on anybody tonight because, again, I don't even know. I'm throwing it out there. This may not apply to anybody in the room. In fact, uh, there's a very good chance it doesn't apply to anybody in the room. But can I tell you tonight that we are not to give out of obligation. We are to give to the Lord out of worship. Worship. It ought to be that when you reach into your pocket or your uh, pocketbook and you drop that envelope in the plate, that you're saying to the Lord, I reverence you so much that I'm going to give this to you because I love you. That's what Abraham did. Abraham took 10% of everything he had gotten and said, here you go, George. He didn't do it and go, oh, man. Imagine what I could have done with that other 10%. The other thing I'll add here is that for some of you, you're not at a place where you can give 10% to the Lord. It It is either that your finances won't let you or your faith won't let you. Now, I'm going to say something that some of you in here will probably disagree with. I'm going to say something right now that many, many of my Baptist pastor brethren I know disagree with. In fact, some people get really upset with me when I say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. It is better for you to give less than 10% by faith than for you to give 10% without faith. God will honor the 5%. If you do that by faith, then if you give the 10% and grit your teeth and complain as you're walking out the door. Now, it's a lot easier for somebody who has $500,000 in the bank, or rather $500,000 coming in a year to give 50000 than it is for somebody who makes 50000 to give five. There's a lot more discretionary income there. The other thing I want to say here is that Why stop at 10%? Why stop at 10%? As you grow in the Lord and your faith grows in the Lord, and you're capable to give more by faith, don't cap yourself. You give and let the Lord bless you accordingly. If you're not at a place where you can give 10% yet, you look at what you can give and take it a step up from there. You say, Pastor, I can't give anything. Will you start at 1%? Will you start at 2%? And then increase that number, that percentage, year by year. And you'll see that as, you're, as, as, as you give faithfully, and God blesses faithfully, that your faith will grow. And that number will grow. And you'll give in a way that pleases the Lord. Melchizedek's role. Number two, Abraham's reverence. Number three, notice Melchizedek's rule. Melchizedek's rule. Okay, so we talked about his role, but we're going to really get into... Who Melchizedek is and what he, uh, what he did through the person of Christ. So role point one, 
Rule point three. Here we go. Letter A, notice the lordship of Christ as priest. Now, um, I want to make sure I say this here. Uh, I do not borrow outlines from anybody. I develop all my own outlines. And um, and when I do borrow an outline from somewhere, I like to give them credit. I knew of a pastor uh, that uh, got all of his sermon outlines off the Internet. And he ended up getting fired from his church over it because it was plagiarism. And so I don't plagiarize people's outlines. Now, with that said, when I do borrow, I do like to let uh, I do like to let everyone know that uh, what I'm using. Okay, letter uh, the, the head points letter A, B, and C. You'll get C uh, probably next week. I got those from John Phillips commentary, or at least some version of this is in John Phillips commentary. Everything else is um, is mine. You say, well, why did you use his? Because I just couldn't find a better way to alliterate it. So. Uh, or even to outline it. So um, I thought, uh, why, you can't improve perfection, and I felt like he nailed it, and so we're running with that. Okay, letter A, the lordship of Christ as priest. Uh, this point about Melchizedek's rule is going to run from 7-4 all the way through chapter 8, verse 5. If you're just reading chapter 7 and chapter 8, the beginning of chapter 8, you're just reading it in your daily reading, can I tell you, unless you're super intelligent, it's probably going to go right over your head. How many of you here have ever read Hebrews 7 and said, oh, that was interesting? I have no idea what that meant, but okay. Anybody ever ever, ever done that? Okay. Uh, that happened to me. In fact, I read the passage many times, and it was still happening to me. Now, to be fair, my IQ is lower than probably some of yours. Um, uh, God has given me a higher emotional quotient than he has intelligence quotient. And so where I, my IQ falls short, I get help. And that's why I have an office full of commentaries, and I have a prayer closet with the Holy Spirit to help me. Uh, the Lordship of Christ is priest. Look at chapter 7 and verse number 4. It says, Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily they are of the son of Levi, who received the office of the priesthood have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, uh, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them receiveth tithes of Abraham, and blessed him that he had the promises. And without all uh, contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. Notice below the lordship uh, of Christ as priest. Notice he came first. Speaking of Melchizedek, uh, he came first. Now let me uh, let me just insert this here. We're we're do, we're dealing with a, a a competition. There is a uh, there is a contrast going on here. Who is the contrast between? It's between Melchizedek, Christ. And the Levites were Aaron. So you have the Melchizedek priesthood versus the Aaronic priesthood. 
Okay, The Melchizedek priesthood versus the Aaronic priesthood. And to just quickly go back, uh, uh, for those uh, who are maybe newer to this Hebrews Bible study, the book of Hebrews was written to the Jews to say to them, Hey, Judaism is dead. Get out of the Old Testament and get with the program in the person of Christ. All of the tenets of Judaism, Jesus is just flat out better than. And so we looked at how he's better than the prophets and better than the angels and better than Moses. And, uh, and now we're looking at how Jesus is better than the priests. And so chapter uh, 5, that discussion began. And then we got into the end of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 where, uh, where the author sort of takes the time out and says, y'all need to grow up a little bit. And then we get back to chapter 7, and he, he, he's out of the time out, and he's resuming this comparison between Melchizedek and Christ versus the Levitical or Aaronic priesthood. Okay, now with all that explained, he came first. He came first before who? Melchizedek came before Aaron. Melchizedek came before Aaron. Let me show you what I'm trying to say here. Look at chapter 7 and look at verse number 4. Now consider how great this man Melchizedek was. Unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoil. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi who receive the office of the priesthood have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law. That is of their brethren uh, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promise. Verse 7, and without all contradiction, the less, or that which comes after, is blessed of the better. Skip down to verse number 9. And as I uh, may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Okay, think of it this way. I wish I had a graphic, but you're going to have to use your imagination. Are we still capable of using our imagination in 2019? Or do we have to see everything on a screen? Okay, we're capable of it, right? Okay, so that means you have to focus, and that means you have to, to, to you know, yonder, uh, travel back to your childhood years of being a superhero or a princess. Okay, whichever one applies to you. Okay, in today's time, boys are princesses and girls are superheroes. So you never know. But whichever one applies to you, okay? Well, uh, travel back to those times. You have, from a timeline standpoint, you have Melchizedek, Abraham, okay? And then a couple children down here, you have Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. You with me? Everybody tracking? Melchizedek, Abraham, Isaac, Israel. Israel had 12 children. One of those 12 children was named Levi. Levi had children, and way down the chain here, Aaron was born. Okay? You with me so far? Okay? Aaron was born, and from Aaron, Aaron, not because of who, not because he was something special. In fact, Aaron lied. He created a golden calf and said, I threw the gold in and this is what popped out. Okay? Aaron was not qualified to be a priest because of who he was. He just got picked to do it. Okay? So you have Aaron who's flawed up against, way back up here at the top, Melchizedek. You with me? Okay, so what this passage is saying is that Melchizedek is greater than Aaron because Melchizedek came first. 
Abraham was paying tithes to Melchizedek while um, uh, Aaron and Levi were still in the loins or still in the reproductive system of Abraham. Way down here would come Aaron. So he came first. And then below that, notice, he lives forever. Look at verse 8. Speaking of Melchizedek, he lives forever. And, and here men uh, that die receive tithes, but there uh, he receiveth them of whom it is written... Um, let's see, whom it is written that he liveth. So these priests continue under Aaron. They continue to replace each other. High priest after high priest after high priest. They die and a new one's appointed, new one's appointed, new one's appointed. And as these come and go, come and go, come and go, come and go. Melchizedek's up here. He just keeps on living. Who's the Lord here? Who's Lord? Melchizedek. By the way, when I say Melchizedek, that's, that's um, interchangeable with Jesus Christ. Okay. Melchizedek is Lord. So the Lordship of Christ as preached. He came first. He existed from eternity past. He's without mother or father. He's going to live on into the future forever. He came first. He's going to live forever. Okay. Uh, so we, we see letter A, the Lordship of Christ is priest. Let's look at letter B, the legality of Christ as priest. Should I get into this tonight? Oh, boy. This is where we really get into some technicalities, the, um, the legality of Christ as priest. Let's look at the first one, and then we'll, um, we'll, call, we'll, we'll call it a night. Below that, notice the priest tribe changed. The priest tribe changed. Okay, Look at verse number 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need was there that any priests or that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. I'm going to stop there for a moment here. Okay, So within Moses' writings of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible... There is no room for a transfer of title deed from Aaron's priesthood over to Melchizedek's priesthood. There is no room for that. Uh, in fact, when he finishes the Pentateuch, it's pretty locked down that you have to be, have been born through the person of Aaron in order to be a priest. Even if you're a Levite, you can't necessarily be a priest. If you're born as a Levite, you got to serve in the temple. You got to help with temple or tabernacle duties, but only those that came directly from Aaron got to be priest. That's locked up, sealed tight. If you're not born through Aaron, you don't get to be a priest. Here's a question for you. Was Christ born from Aaron? Aaron came from which tribe? I, I told you a few minutes ago. You remember? Coming down, you have Abraham, and then you have... Israel, and he had 12 children, and Levi, and from Levi, Aaron. So Aaron is part of which child? Levi. Good, you're listening. Okay. Um, Jesus came from which of the 12? Judah. We see a problem here? To be a priest, you have to be from Aaron's lineage. Judah is a completely different branch. Jesus was born under the kingly Reign, the kingly tribe, not the priestly tribe. Okay? So how does all this fit together? 
Well, turn over to Psalm chapter 110. David comes along and he's writing the psalm, the hymn book for the Israelites. He's writing the hymn book for the Israelites. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we find Melchizedek again. He appears out of nowhere in Genesis 14, and he's gone. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, David brings in Melchizedek. Look at verse 4. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Look up at verse 1. The Lord, that speaking of Jehovah, said unto my Lord, that speaking of the Messiah or Christ, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. And uh, this is a psalm that is describing Jesus' future. And in his future, not only is he going to be Lord or King, he's also going to be priest. David is laying the ground rule for the rules, or rather laying the groundwork for the rules to be changed so that it can be swapped from Aaron over to Judah's tribe in the person of Christ. Look back at verse uh, chapter 7 and look at verse number 12. For the priesthood being changed. Okay, again, who did it change from? It changed from Levi or Aaron and over to Judah. We see this? Remember I told you at the very beginning of the Bible study that there is no human being that wasn't divine who could be both king and priest? Well, now in order for Jesus to be a king and priest... He's got to be born through Judah's line and then have the title deed of priesthood transfer from Aaron's line over to Judah's line. Okay, look at verse verse 12 again. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. So the law, whose law? Moses' law had to be changed. So now it isn't just Aaronic priesthood sealed up and shut tight. Now the laws are being changed. Boy, you have to be a pretty pretty powerful person to go in and change that law. Look at verse 13. For he of whom these things are spoken uh, pertaineth to another tribe, again, that's Judah, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. So nobody from Judah ever gave attendance, never worked the altar. Verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord, speaking of Jesus, sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. So Moses never said anything about Judah Serving as a priest. But God used David to begin to change the law so that Jesus could come in of the priesthood of Melchizedek and he could be king and priest. How many of you here, your mind is, uh, is, is full and overflowing? Okay. Uh, like I said, we're going to get into some Bible nerd type stuff. Uh, but it's all good and it's all necessary. And, you, and I just want to finish this. You have to understand that for... The folks reading this, it was written to the Jews, to first century Jews, who were still hung up on sacrificing, sacrifices going on in the temple. And they needed to be shown, stop worshiping these Aaronic priests because God's done with them. Worship Jesus, he's a far better priest. And so that was the purpose of this. And I'll just finish the sermon with this. The Bible says with this. Worship the Lord. Worship the Lord. Worship him in your singing. Worship Him with your service. Worship Him with uh, your finances. And give the Lord what's due to Him. Everything about us ought to worship the Lord.